Welcome to Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. In this series, we explore the hidden driver behind the crises that are upending societies and disrupting the life support systems of the planet. That hidden driver is power, our pursuit of it, our overuse of it, and our abuse of it. I'm your host, Melody Travers. And I'm Rob Dietz, your co-pilot and program director at Post Carbon Institute. Join us as we explore power and why giving it up just might save us. So last episode, we talked about the evolution of social power and the various pumps that lead to greater stratification and inequality among people. And this week, we are focusing on how the discovery of fossil fuels literally changed the face of the earth. Well, in terms of changing the face of the earth, uh, you remember last week, Melody, I just stumbled upon these juxtapositions of city photos. It was, okay, here's Dubai in the year 2000. Here's Dubai today. And the, the change that you could see in these cities in a very short period of time, of course, all fueled by oil and coal and natural gas, just amazing. Yeah, those totally blew my mind. I sent them to my family. The Dubai one that you brought up, it was like a a flat, sandy site. And then the present picture was like these skyscrapers that looked like crystals coming out (laughs) of the desert. It's very trippy. It doesn't even look real in the photograph, honestly. Yeah, yeah, a little sci-fi-ish in a way. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's incredible how a city can mushroom in a short amount of time. There were a bunch of others in there, and we'll we'll try to get it in the show notes, but uh, there was Seoul, and there was Rio de Janeiro, and yeah, a whole bunch of places. Really, really fascinating, and shows you just the power that's packed into fossil fuels. And I think this is an area where, you know, we tend to be kind of kind of ignorant. Like we just don't understand how powerful they are. And the point was driven home to me one time from trying to do a simple exercise. So story is that my girlfriend's car wouldn't start and it was parked over at my place. And I'm like, okay, we got to get this thing to the mechanic. I'm way too cheap to pay for a tow truck. (laughs) So let's just push it there. And it was less than a mile. So not very far and completely flat. So I'm like, this is doable. I, I can I can get this done. Uh, Still seems pretty far, but okay. Yeah. Well, sure. turns out I I cannot get this done. <laughs> um, I I had to get two of my friends who are both CrossFit athletes to help me, mm. and the three of us pushed the car this distance, less than a mile, and and we had to get it up the final little curb cut into the into the mechanics parking lot, and that slight incline was probably the hardest thing uh, I've ever tried to do physically. Like we were at our max pushing this car. And when you compare that to what it would have taken if the car had started, it would have burned five tablespoons of gas. You know, these tiny little amounts of this liquid had as much power as three adult men trying their best, you know, and it's, uh, And the amount of time, too, you know, think how fast the car would have driven there versus how slow we were pushing it. Yeah, my scooter ran out of gas one time because the gas gauge was broken and it like puttered out. And uh, the closest gas station was actually uphill. And I tried to push that thing and it's only a couple hundred pounds. Also on wheels. And, you know, I was sweating, exhausted, and and I also had some very nice strangers come and, and help me and, you know, filled it up. And one gallon of gas would get me through 10 days of commuting to and from work every day. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody that wants to know how much power is in fossil fuel, just, just try pushing your fossil fueled vehicle around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are really good like kind of small scale, but on a larger scale, I've experienced a couple different citywide blackouts. In 2012, I was living in New York City during Hurricane Sandy, and I had that eerie experience of walking downtown in lower Manhattan where everything was dark and quiet 
there were no people, there were no lights, there was no sound. It was, <laughs> I, I don't know. It was like out of some weird day after tomorrow type post apocalyptic movie. And it was just, it was crazy to see how a bustling place can just stop dead in its tracks. Yeah, it's it's one thing when your vehicle runs out of juice. It's another thing when your whole society runs out of <laughs> juice. Uh, so what, what did you do when that happened? Well, <laughs> my, my roommates at the time, I thought that they were being really dramatic. They're like, we're going to our friend's house. She has a backup generator. We were in an old tenement building, uh, you know, the fifth floor of a walk-up. So they're like, we're getting out of here. And I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. I packed an overnight bag, bought a six-pack of beer, and went up to my friend's apartment on the Upper West Side and ended up staying there for a week. (laughs) (laughs) So so your ticket of entry to uh, a place that that, that had electricity, I'm guessing, uh, mm-hmm. was one six-pack of beer, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one six-pack of beer. Not even enough to last one beer for one person per day that I was staying there. <laughs> I, I hope that was at least some really good micro-brew stuff. You weren't taking, probably like, Bud not. Light or something? <laughs> no way, yeah. It was probably crap beer, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, you know, there were no grocery stores. There was no... I mean, luckily, he was kind of stocked at the time. But I was the first person to to show up. But after a while, you know, my my roommates with their friends that had a backup generator that went down. And so it ended up being about 10 people staying at his house. And we ate through all of those like cans of beans that live in the back of the cabinet for years. Yeah, I think that we as a society are pretty blind to that infrastructure and how it's all powered by these magical fossil fuels. And it makes us kind of vulnerable. One of the the ideas that really crystallized that for me came out of a report that Jason Bradford wrote. And of course, uh, our listeners should be familiar with Jason. He was on a previous episode explaining how what how life got started on Earth, maybe. <laughs> right. So Jason was working on a report on the food system called The Future is Rural. And one of the facts in there that he reports is how we've kind of gotten inverted. So for each calorie of food that you eat off of your plate, it actually takes 10 calories to get it there. What? So we've got this inversion that would not happen in nature. You know, if... If you are a cheetah on the Serengeti Plains and you have to uh, chase down gazelles for dinner, if you're spending more energy to do that than the gazelle is providing, you're going to die pretty soon. Like you, It just can't happen. The only reason we can do that as humans is this magical bounty of fossil fuel that we've got. So if you think about how our food system works... Um, you know, the industrialized food system, you've got all these activities up and down. You have the farm tractor, you've got the embedded energy for fertilizers and other inputs. You have processing and packaging of food. You've got warehouses and and grocery stores. And then you, in your own household, you've got shopping and refrigerating and cooking. And you have to transport things all throughout this this entire system. So, it's all dependent on fossil fuels and it's largely invisible. You know, you're just eating the food off your plate that you got at the store. My partner and I got, we, we were kind of into gardening, but we got really into gardening during the pandemic, like everybody else, and <laughs> um, started really focusing on fruits and vegetables and stuff. And and part of that was that produce and, and food was was looking kind of scarce at at a certain point, right? And we grew uh, tomatoes and peppers and okra and eggplant and all all sorts of stuff. And I would say most of the work was at the at the beginning, prepping the beds and everything. And after that, it was you know mild weeding, and you know we'd spend like ten minutes every day, so not not that much work. But the amount of <laughs> 
the amount of money that we put into our garden with the soil and soil amendments and organic fertilizers and the seeds and all the plants that we tried that died. And uh, we just always joke about how we're like, mm, this is the best $10 tomato I've ever eaten. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm sure that that was a delicious $10 tomato and worth every cent. Um, <laughs> but I, you, you bring up a good point, which is the difference between looking at things through a monetary lens versus an energy lens. So on the monetary front, maybe you weren't all that efficient at, uh, at tomato mm -hmm. production. You know, you're not going to be in the market very long if you have to sell each tomato for $10. <laughs> right. uh, I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about a good big tomato and not like a little cherry tomato. That <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. this year, this year we had some like some really nice big heirlooms, but the, nice. the first year of growing was, it, it was cherry tomatoes, if yeah. I'm being honest. <laughs> but, but think about it from an energy perspective. I think you're actually triumphant in that, hmm. you know, you didn't have all this shipping, all these different high intensity, high energy inputs in order to to produce the food and get it to your plate, you know, you're you're more in balance there. So, you know, it gets to the idea of of localization versus globalization. Some really, you know, kind of big picture philosophical how do I arrange society kinds mm -hmm. of questions. I think that that's something that we struggle with, you know, supporting a local CSA versus going to the grocery store and buying something that is honestly it is cheaper. It is, you know, from an economic point of view, superior, but from that energy point of view, it's uh, it supports a system that doesn't really make sense. So there's this this fundamental mismatch that we're that we're dealing with. And that's something that I I really want to talk with Richard about why these things don't match up and and what we can do about it. Yeah, he's he's the one to talk to about that and maybe about uh, how to grow tomatoes more cheaply, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could use advice on that as well. Well, All thanks right. a lot, Rob. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Melody. Catch up with you more next time. Richard. Hey, Melody. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and you? I'm good. <laughs> good. Last episode, we talked about the processes by which humans attain social power over their environment and one another. So we left off our last conversation with this observation that social power has surged exponentially in the last couple of hundred years. And it seemed like part of that has been from just sheer population growth, which was facilitated by some advances in our food systems. And I was just talking with Rob about growing up tomato in my backyard and this kind of odd mismatch of a store-bought tomato being cheaper than mine that I grew in my garden um, even though from an energy perspective, it costs a lot more to produce and transport one to my house. So I was wondering if we could start off our conversation with why the store-bought tomato is cheaper. <laughs> well, um, an economist, of course, would say it's the scale of production. So, you know, if you're growing... 20,000 tomato plants, the amount of labor that you have to put into uh, producing each tomato is way, way less than if you're just growing one tomato plant. But that explanation really hides a lot of what's going on because, you know, really this is all down to fossil fuels because they supply energy that's a lot cheaper than labor energy. So regardless of whether you have, you know, farmhands who are producing the tomatoes that are getting ridiculously low wages, you know, even in that case, the input of fossil fuel energy in running the tractors and transporting the food and, and processing it and all the rest, that's such cheap energy that the labor that you put into producing your home tomato, if you were paying yourself 
uh, 20 bucks an hour. Those would be really, really expensive tomatoes, but a lot less fossil fuel energy goes into producing those homegrown tomatoes. This all came up because we were talking about fossil fuels and the magical, crazy transformations that have happened to the landscape from it. And so I, I wanted to start with what fossil fuels are and, and where they came from. Oh, okay, good. Well, basically, the story starts tens of millions of years ago. And a lot of people think, you know, oil comes from dead dinosaurs. And it's, it's just not true. First of all, there were... Wait, it's not? <laughs> no, 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 no. No dinosaurs in there. It's the tiny microorganisms. But this is tens of millions of years worth of ancient sunlight captured by plants, transformed by nature into these substances that are just amazing in terms of how much energy is stored there. And then we're using that energy over the course of just a couple of hundred years. So from millions of years of sunlight to just a couple of hundred years in which we're extracting and using this energy. So the result is, in human terms, just an amazing proliferation of all kinds of physical power it's then becomes social power. Wow. To think about like a battery charging for millions of years yeah. and then just being like, woohoo! Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a great way to think oh, about it. I found this awesome battery. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it just yeah. goes and goes. Absolutely. So, you know, grains were concentrated stores of energy, and that's what got mm -hmm. the first complex human societies going, the early state societies, kingdoms, and so on. Right. And fossil fuels are kind of the same thing. You know, they're concentrated stores of energy, only way more so. So a single barrel of oil contains chemically stored energy that's equivalent to something like 25,000 hours of human muscle-powered labor. So, you know, if you're paying, again, say $20 an hour for labor, then a barrel of oil ought to cost half a million dollars. Oh my gosh. But instead, you know, it costs a hundred dollars. So that's, that's just a, a way of thinking of how cheap fossil fuel energy actually is. And, and, and of course that explains why we use it to do absolutely anything we can. You know, we've, over the last hundred years, we've mechanized all kinds of activities just because it's so much cheaper to do those things with machines running on fossil fuels than it is with human labor. I'm still trying to wrap my head around what 25,000 hours of human muscle would, would be. <laughs> and I'm reminded of, I think it was Bruce Lee who said, you do one kick 10,000 times to master it, or, or you know, that 10,000 hour re rule to master something. And 25,000 hours would be two and a half times mastering something. So... <laughs> Um, that's just, uh, it's just wild to like even try to conceptualize or, or Rob was talking about pushing a car right. and, you know, how much, uh, draining muscle it took to, to push this thing that, you know, just takes a couple tablespoons of oil. It's really amazing to think about. Yeah. And, and another way to think about it is how much energy we have to invest in getting energy. And th this is a, a concept that some scientists call energy return on investment or energy return on energy investment, E-R-O-E-I. It's sometimes uh, acronymed with. So it, it takes energy to get energy, as I, as I just said. Uh, and with getting your energy from growing food crops, you know, using uh, traction animals, oxen, and, and human labor, your energy profit may be something like three to one. So you invest uh, one unit of energy in you know, plowing and harvesting and taking care of the animals, and you get three units of energy back. Okay, and that's, that's enough surplus to operate an ancient state society on. Well, once we started using fossil fuels, suddenly the energy return on investment for you know, drilling an oil well or digging a coal mine or something could be 50 to 1 or 100 to 1. And so it didn't take so many people to be involved in basic energy production activities. And that freed up 
an enormous amount of people to to do all the other kinds of things that you know we're interested in doing, whether it's you know being accountants or 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 soldiers or podcasters, podcasters. <laughs> yeah, right. So when was when was coal first discovered? And I, because I, I think that was the first fossil fuel. And, That's right. And how did it transform those regions? Well, people have probably been aware of coal for a very long time. We have records, at least going back to uh, Roman times, probably long before. Wow. But there wasn't much systematic effort to exploit coal for energy. Uh, People even made jewelry out of it. But it did have this peculiar tendency to catch fire. Oh, no. What a gorgeous necklace. You're you're just like in flames. Yikes. Damn. So so in China, just over a thousand years ago, uh, people first started using coal as a fuel to heat their homes and heat baths. and, And they also used it to make iron and steel. So, you know, people had already been making iron using using charcoal made out of wood, but coal just, you know, made hotter fires and it was it was more plentiful because people were cutting down all their trees to 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 smelt iron with. So, during this time, again about a thousand years ago in China, technological innovation was really taking off. The Chinese were inventing movable printing type, uh, the blast furnace, mechanical water clocks, paddle wheel ships, a magnetic compass. Uh, they, they even built these huge ocean-going ships or junks with watertight bulkheads that carried up to 600 tons. And they had a big crew, wow. maybe a thousand people. They were really an industrializing society. And we don't talk about this in our history books very much, but they do talk about it in China. They're very proud of it. But um, (laughs) this process of industrial expansion continued until about the 1200s, and then it just stopped. Wow. I really had no idea, especially you said movable type printing, which obviously we associate with like Gutenberg, which I think was 500 years after what you're talking about. That's totally incredible. But what? (laughs) So what happened? Like, why didn't the Industrial Revolution happen in China? And you talked about the 1200s, like that globally became kind of the Dark Ages, right? right? Is my is my history correct? Yep. Well, so what happened was um, China was ruled by a hereditary aristocracy, just as Europe was at the time. And uh, the, the aristocrats looked at industrialization as a threat to their political power. They saw all these people who had the blast furnaces fueled by coal getting rich, and they thought, well, you know, these people are going to take over. So they had enough social power still at that time that they could just shut this thing down, and that's what they did. So it tells us that um, sometimes historical processes like the exploitation of new energy resources, even though they seem inevitable, they're also subject to, you know, historical quirks, and and they're also subject to social power. So you know, things can change. That's so interesting because we've been talking about this relationship between social power being dependent on physical power. But this is an example where the social power actually trumped the physical power for hundreds and hundreds of years. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a rare example, I have to say, but but (laughs) it shows that it's possible. So what were the conditions... When I think of the Industrial Revolution and coal, I really think about Britain. So what were the conditions there that led to the Industrial Revolution? Okay, well, in Britain, there was already a new center of social power emerging, which consisted of traders and early industrialists. And these industrialists were mostly relying on water power to operate Mm. their machinery. 
and they were getting a lot of wealth from colonial possessions. I mean, you could invest in a shipping company and get rich, right? Like crypto. <laughs> yeah, right. So these people had already managed to rival the old hereditary aristocracy in terms of wealth and social influence. That battle had already happened, you know, and had already mm. been won. So even if the royalty and aristocrats in Britain had viewed fossil fuels as a threat, these new power centers didn't because they realized they could get even richer. And so the industrial expansion went ahead in Britain, even though it had been you know, stopped in China. And this, this really rested on three pillars. Of course, the increasing use of coal as fuel, and Britain had coal. It also depended on technological innovation, just as it had in China, and also encouragement for capital investment, like private property rights. If it hadn't been possible for people to own coal mines and profit from operating them, then you know the Industrial Revolution probably wouldn't have happened. So China had all three of these things, but in that case, it didn't work out. In Britain, again, we see the same things. There's coal, there's technological innovation, there's private property, and it moves ahead, and here we are as a result. World history was changed. Yeah, John Locke was kind of the father of private property, basically establishing the social part that was lacking in China, that third pillar to, to prop all of this up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, Britain is where capitalism starts. So capitalism and industrialism are really kind of joined at the hip. You couldn't have had industrialization on any large scale if there hadn't been at least the rudiments of, of capitalism there. And coal. And, uh, and so in right. Britain, there, there just happened to be a lot of easily accessible coal. It was even, you know, washing up on seashores. And uh, people could go out and collect it from from the shore. Or there were big deposits also that were very close to the surface, so you didn't have to dig very deep. But as time went on, people in Britain started to use more and more coal for, for heat and then for industrial purposes. Of course, the fact that they'd cut down almost all their forests uh, was a big incentive to use all this coal. And as the mines were dug deeper and deeper, this created a problem because they, they got to the water table and they couldn't go any deeper because the mines would flood. So what do you do uh. then? Well, technology to the rescue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> somebody invents a steam engine. A, a guy named Thomas Newcomen invented a very inefficient steam pump to pump out the water and it was later improved by James Watt. And of course, we know the watt as the unit of measure of power. Oh, right. Yeah. So all these things are historically tied together. And from that point on, coal sort of creates its own feedback loop. So demand for coal drives technological developments that in turn drive more demand for coal because, you know, what, what are the steam engines running on? Well, they're running right. on coal. So you're using coal to pump out the water from the coal mine so you can get more coal. And you're always finding more uses for the coal. Somebody connects a steam engine with a wagon on rails and suddenly you've got railroads and, and, uh, and steam shipping and steam-powered steam factories and, and all the rest. So once this feedback loop gets going, Britain becomes a global economic powerhouse and a center for science and industry. And then later on, that center sort of migrates over across the Atlantic Ocean to the U.S., but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. Yeah, there... There was another thing that you mentioned in your book that one of the really positive consequences of the adoption of coal was this positive social impact for women's rights and the end of slavery. And I was just wondering how much of these we can attribute to fossil fuels and do you think that this kind of social progress would have emerged without it? Yeah. 
Well, of course, it's, it's impossible to say for sure, but it sure seems like industrialization created conditions where it was easier for people to demand more opportunity mm. for political participation. Certainly with agriculture becoming mechanized, people were moving to the cities and looking for jobs. And, of course, industrialists were creating jobs with all the factories they were building. So while agricultural life encouraged a strongly gendered division of labor with men you know, working in the fields and women tending to domestic chores, urban jobs could mostly be done just as well by either women or men. So, of course, women were more likely to begin to demand equal pay and equal political rights. Mm. At the same time, uh, you see unionization emerging with coal power. Wage labor started in coal mines on a large scale. I mean, yeah, people had paid each other for work before then, but but on an organized large scale, it, it really starts with coal mines. And those were the places where the first labor unions formed. Coal miners were different from farmers in that they were easier to organize. They, you know, they were all working at these these dreary underground jobs and if they you know if they got too upset with their working conditions they could slow the whole process down disrupt it uh the word sabotage was created at that time to describe what what some of these folks did in order to you know fight back at the at the mine owners and this was very effective you know they were they were able to shut down coal mines which shut down railroads, and uh, or they shut down the railroads, which were, were the ways of distributing the coal. Right. So, uh, so this was a way of gaining political and social power that really worked, and it changed the political conditions in Britain and in other industrialized countries. The way that you're describing that wage labor and then labor unions developing in tandem makes it seem like the social dynamics were like, seeking balance, trying to maintain homeostasis like an organism, you know, like if it swung too far in one direction, it pulled to the other side. Yeah. And the other thing that I was thinking about is that difference between the public sphere and the private sphere where women were at home doing domestic chores, like you said, but work was always something that was seen as public. And the public sphere is where politics happened. Yeah. And so allowing women to get out of the private sphere seemed to allow those conditions as well. Yeah, that's a really good observation. Yeah, uh, Timothy Mitchell wrote a whole book about this. Uh, it's titled Carbon Democracy. And he points out that the period between the 1870s and World War One was the age of union-propelled democratization. And at the same time, it was also the age of steamboat colonialism. So this, this almost seems like a contradiction. Coal was leading to more domestic political engagement, uh -huh. but internationally to more exploitation of land and labor, maybe on the other side of the planet. But it's not such a contradiction when you look at it in terms of energy flows, because energy was flowing to industrial countries. Hmm. And if you happen to live in one of those countries, the economic pie was growing. So it was natural for people to expect and demand a larger slice, which is what was going on. But of course, the people who were living in the countries that were being exploited didn't get such a good deal. So that imbalance just became sort of international and further away and maybe even more like out of sight, out of mind. So it seemed like all this great stuff was happening in the industrialized world, but at the at the peril of people across the world. Right. And, and this, this happens even more so, but in, in different ways as we shift from coal to oil. Yeah. So how, how did the advent of oil further accelerate this feedback loop that you were talking about? Well, with oil, we get the beginnings really of the modern world, the modern idea of the global economy. People didn't think of the economy as a thing or consumerism, you know, before oil. Oil was even more energy dense than coal, and it could be transported more easily through 
pipelines and oil tankers. It was traded internationally more than coal was. So it created a different kind of economy. It was so easy to make stuff using oil that um, it created the problem in the early 20th century of overproduction. And that led to the Great Depression. Hmm. Factories could produce far more stuff than people could actually buy. So eventually the factories were idled and people lost their jobs. So this was a huge problem. And there was this new um, new job <laughs> description called economist. And the, mm. so the economists looked at this and they said, oh, this is a big problem. What do we do about this? Mm-hmm. And their solution was to organize the economy around encouraging consumption. If you got too much production, well, you balance that out with more consumption. Right. And so advertising really takes off starting in in the 1930s, and especially after World War II with the 1950s. And instead of being called people or citizens, now we're called consumers, because that's our role in the economy. Our role is to consume as much stuff as possible. So we're making jobs for somebody else, and also, of course, profits for the people who own the factories. Another new idea that comes with the oil age is the idea of development. A seed develops into a plant. An infant develops into a child, which develops into a teenager, which develops into an adult. You know, development is is a natural biological concept. But economists applied this term, development, to the process of industrialization and getting rich from industrialization. And the implication was it's perfectly natural for any economy to develop from being basically agricultural or pre-agricultural to ultimately being an industrial economy running on fossil fuels. This is just a natural development, just like growing from infancy to adulthood, right? Well, it's not, of course. It's, it's, it's entirely a, a historical accident. It's, a, it's a, something that happened because of fossil fuels and technology and private property. But, you know, for economists, this is development, and it sounds so good. Right. So it's a way of saying to these other countries that are being exploited, well, look, okay, it looks bad now. We're, transfer- we're taking all your wealth and raw materials, and, and mm-hmm. you know, you're supplying super cheap labor so we can get rich. But it's okay, <laughs> because you're developing. Right. You're going to be like us someday, right? Yeah, that, that's so <laughs> tricky, too, because not only is it natural, it would be unnatural to want to stay an infant or a little seed. There's like... um an imperative, an ethical imperative kind of slipped into that idea of development where your country doesn't want to be stunted. You know, the <laughs> right thing, the the correct thing to do is to develop. Right. Yeah, that's so slippery. <laughs> yeah, so this plays into economic growth because, yeah. you know, economic growth is part and parcel with development. And nobody expected the economy to constantly grow Prior to the 20th century, the fossil fuel 20th century, first of all, nobody called it the economy, but business transactions, uh, the process of of producing food, all of that stuff, it went on, Mm -hmm. but nobody totaled it up using measures like GDP, Mm -hmm. and nobody expected that GDP would grow from one year to the next. This all came really after the 1930s. Wow. And so economists looked at the economy, the fossil-fueled economy, and it was growing, and they said, oh, well, this is what it's supposed to do. This is all part of development, and it's perfectly natural for economies to grow. It's the right thing. It's always producing more jobs and more profits and so on. We like it. So this is what we should always have is more economic growth. Mm -hmm. And more jobs and more profit is also important because at the same time, the population keeps growing too. And that feeds into this growth paradigm. Absolutely. So at the start of the 20th century, the world population was around, what, like 2 billion? Mm -hmm. And then... Everybody started freaking out because they thought, okay, our our population has been growing so much. How are we going to feed everybody? 
And then this like amazing, miraculous thing happened where I think it was a German scientist invented nitrogen fertilizers. Yeah, right. And that drove things really exponentially. Yeah, it was a couple of German scientists, Fritz Haber and Karl Bosch. Mm, And mm -hmm. natural gas was sort of a new thing at the time. It was produced along with oil. And at first, nobody knew what to do with it. But then they started collecting it. And they realized they could make explosives out of it. And in World War I, that's what they started doing, was was, uh, making ammonia-based explosives starting with natural gas. But that ammonia could also be used as fertilizer. And here was a solution to a huge problem because, you know, at the time, as you say, world food production was really hitting limits. And the biggest limit was in the fertility of soils. Mm. And nobody knew what to do about it. They'd been using huge deposits of bird droppings, guano, (laughs) who were found on some Pacific islands. And, you know, they... Uh, ships would dock at these islands and load up on bird poop <laughs> and, Ooh, and then stinky. take it to Europe and, and America and, and put, it, put it on the land to fertilize the land. But that was a stopgap solution because, of course, they were, that, was, uh, that was depleting fast. Mm-hmm. So finding this nitrogen fertilizer that you could manufacture, wow. Uh, suddenly the sky was the limit. It was possible to re-fertilize soils on an annual basis and produce a lot more food. And that was really the basis for what would later become the Green Revolution, where you know crop yields were growing year after year. And as we were also putting more land into production, it was possible to feed a population that was growing at an astronomical rate. But it's all down to fossil fuels. It's it's those nitrogen fertilizers that we produce, mostly using natural gas. I want to get back to oil, because I know oil is propping that side up. But there's also been a lot of shifts in the social power dynamics. Now it's not between tribes or even countries, it's gone to this global level. So I I was just wondering if you could talk me through after World War II, there was this big upset of two world powers emerging. And so I want to hear a little bit more about how oil has impacted that. So, you know, after World War II, you have the U.S. and the Soviet Union two big oil-producing countries that are contesting for for global power. Most of the world is in ruins, and actually uh, the Soviet Union suffered tremendously during World War II, too, in terms of loss of population, loss of, of productivity, and so on. So it's, it's trying to rebuild quickly. Mm-hmm. But the U.S., you know, World War II is not fought on U.S. soil, right. with very tiny exceptions. So the U.S. emerges as kind of a global superpower at at the time and establishes the United Nations, but also the World Bank and the IMF, which kind of dominate the world financial system. And so we have the Cold War, which moves us from direct confrontation, which is what we had during World War I, World War II, which were fought with oil and fought over oil, to a, a different kind of conflict, because now, you know, the end of World War II, we have the development of nuclear weapons. And so the U.S. and the USSR do not want to get into direct right. confrontation, because that's just too dangerous. So from here on, we have proxy wars like the U.S. and Vietnam, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And then the Soviet Union collapses, partly as a result of the U.S. talking its ally, Saudi Arabia, into lowering world oil prices in the mid-1980s to such an extent as to more or less bankrupt the Soviet Union. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it's a story that not many people know, but it's told in, in, in several books. And so when the USSR goes bankrupt and, uh, and collapses then the U.S. really is 
the world's sole superpower. But, you know, it botches the whole thing with optional <laughs> wars in right. Afghanistan and, and Iraq. All this time, oil is kind of in the background of things, maintaining control of oil flows. All oil sales globally are denominated in U.S. dollars. So in a way, the whole global economy is sort of backed up by oil, and the U.S. is in charge of the whole thing. So we've gotten our conversation up to pretty present. You talked about the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, So we're into the 21st century now. And I know there was like this big discussion about the concept of peak oil. You know, when when would we be producing the most oil ever? And then it would kind of plateau and decline. And I've just heard different things about when that's going to happen, if it's going to happen, is it happening right now? Did it happen a couple of years ago? Can you give me a little sure. <laughs> a little background on that? Yeah, well, the whole peak oil discussion is, is based on the, uh, the understanding that oil is a depleting non-renewable resource. And it's depleting in real time. You know, we're, we're using more and more of it every year. Mm-hmm. So how long can we keep doing that? Right. Uh, and we extract oil based on the low-hanging fruit principle. We go after the stuff that's highest quality, easiest to get first, and leave the nasty, hard-to-get stuff for later. And we've been doing that for decades and decades. And we're down to some of the nasty, hard-to-get stuff. Hmm. I mean, if you look at the last couple of decades where oil production has grown, it's mostly, well, Canadian tar sands, which is the nastiest, dirtiest stuff there is. And also in the U.S., what's often called shale oil or tight oil that's produced by hydrofracturing and horizontal drilling. This is oil that's really hard to get out of the ground because it's it's located in rocks that have very low permeability. There's there's oil there, but it just doesn't want to move. You, you drill a vertical well into the the oil bearing rock, and the oil says, "Oh, fine, hello." It doesn't want to just <laughs> wants to stay there. <laughs> oh, oh, so it's just it doesn't want to move. Doesn't want to move. Oh, okay. So you have to encourage it. First of all, by drilling horizontally into that rock layer and then using explosives to punch holes in, in the pipe. And then it, it will move into the borehole, but uh-huh. it moves kind of all at once. And so these wells deplete very, very rapidly, and you have to continually drill more and more wells. So this is, this is what we're down to. It's kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel, if you will. It's not like we're about to run out of oil. There's still a lot of oil in the Earth's crust. Okay. But at a certain point, it will no longer be possible to continue increasing the rate at which we extract it. And that's what the whole peak oil discussion is about. And the evidence is we're getting, if we're not there yet, we're very close to it. If you look at world oil production statistics, uh, around November 2018 was the month of single highest oil production month in world history. Mm. So we're a few years past that now, and um, it's conceivable that we could see uh, some increased production from the Permian Basin in Texas, which is, right. you know, that's tight oil, hydrofracturing. But uh, every place else is producing pretty much flat out. Russia, which was a big oil producer, is seeing its oil production decline. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the other Middle Eastern countries are relying on tired old oil wells that have been producing since the 1940s and 50s. So there's not much more to get from there, uh, I mean, in terms of, of rate of production. So, uh, yeah, we're kind of there, I think. That's so interesting that you're talking about fracking that way because I'm just like seeing headlines like fracking, the new thing that's going to save us. And I mean, it did like significantly boost the American economy, right? Oh, yeah. It was a, it was a miracle. I mean, the U.S. went from producing like 5 million barrels a day to producing 12, 
million barrels a day, 13 wow. million barrels a day, as a result of fracking. It, it, was, it was the most rapid increase in oil production that any country has ever seen. Wow. So yeah, it was a miracle. But you know what goes up must come down. And in this case, it went up really fast, and it may come down really fast. So with fracking, to, to go back to that concept of the, the energy return on energy invested, there seems to be a lot more there. But is the problem that it's just a lot harder to get, and so you're just not getting the same types of returns? Yeah, I mean, and this this shows up in the bottom line. Most of the companies that specialize in fracking, and we're not talking for the most part about, you know, giant oil companies like Exxon, Chevron, Shell, and those those guys. We're talking about small to medium-sized oil companies, maybe 50, 60 of them. Most of them lost money hand over fist over the last decade producing tight oil. Right now, with higher oil prices, they are making a good return, Mm -hmm. but we'll see how long that lasts. You mentioned energy return on energy invested, and that's, that's really key here because it takes so much more effort to produce this stuff that the energy return on investment of society as a whole is declining. As we move to these harder to get fossil fuel resources, whether it's digging deeper for coal, as we're doing, China is having to dig much deeper for coal now than it was just a decade ago, whether it's natural gas, whether it's oil, as that's happening, the energy return on energy invested for society as a whole is declining. And that means it's more and more challenging to maintain the same level of social complexity Hmm. that we have developed as a result of having such cheap energy. Yeah, you said in in the book that humanity has been building an ever-expanding castle on an eroding sandbar. I thought that was beautifully said. And I wanted to know a little bit more about what you meant by that. Right. Well, of course, as we've said, these are finite, depleting resources. Hmm. This isn't just an earth-shattering realization that nobody's ever had before. People have have been thinking about this for for some decades. So what's what's the plan B? What's our backup energy source? And in the 1950s, that backup energy source was assumed to be nuclear power. So that's when countries started developing and building uh, nuclear power plants. Nuclear power turned out to be a lot more expensive than anybody was figuring on, and nobody knew what to do with the nuclear waste, and that's still the case today. So nuclear power was built out to a certain extent, but then pretty much stagnated, and it's extremely unlikely that we will turn to nuclear power now as fossil fuels become more and more expensive. So now the alternative plan is is solar and wind. Yeah, I was going to bring that up because with things like the Green New Deal and climate discussions, it's always a new holy grail, as it were. And I was uh, also reminded of Marshall McLuhan calling electricity an extension of the nervous system. But I brought up with Rob earlier that I've been in some massive blackouts And Mm -hmm. there's some vulnerabilities that are built into the electrical grid and the system. And so as we're talking about all these different energy sources and we've got this whole complex society built on this and we've seen these moments, right? My example was Hurricane Sandy. So it was a, you know, a natural disaster. So what are some of those vulnerabilities and how do we try to overcome some of those and can we even with what you were talking about with like wind and solar well electricity is an extremely useful energy carrier so some of our most important societal processes are totally dependent on electricity now Uh, communication information storage and so what happens if the grid goes down Everything stops working. Right. Even the gasoline pumps stop working because they work on electricity. So even though we only use 20% of our energy in the form of electricity, the other 80% we use in the form of solid, liquid, and gaseous fuels, that 20% 
is really, really key. And it's absolutely essential for hospitals and, and offices and your home office and, <laughs> and keeping the stores running and all the rest. It's absolutely essential that we keep the grid operating. So that's why even with the limitations of solar and wind power, I think it's really important that we build as much of this stuff as we can while we can. Mm. Because right now it takes a lot of fossil fuels to build solar panels and wind turbines and you know source the materials for them, do the manufacturing processes and, and deploy them all around the world and so on. You know, we, we aren't going to have fossil fuels forever. And, you know, forever is a very long time, but the, 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 it may be a very short time yeah. that we still have fossil fuels available in the quantity and the cheapness that we currently enjoy. So we've got to use this time to build out alternative energy sources as much as possible while reducing our need for energy as much as we can. We can't just assume that renewable electricity is going to enable the industrial revolution and economic growth to continue into the you know, 22nd century, it ain't going to happen. We've got to not just look at, for alternative energy sources, but alternative ways of organizing our economy, organizing our lives, so that we get by with less power. I, I guess the question now is, We've got this world shaping power. So what do we do with it? Yeah. And it's, it's a result of fossil fuels and our, our human power has overtaken nature really at an exponential rate. And many of us are enjoying comforts and conveniences that, I mean, I could go out and get some ice cream and only a hundred years ago, I mean, a king might be able to get some ice cream. In the middle of summer. In the middle yeah. of summer. And they'd have to like haul a block of ice down from a mountain or something. And now we can, we can travel far and wide and fast. And we can just like summon all this information, communicate with people across the world where we've become, I don't know, like aristocrats or, or royalty of the earth beckoning things. Yeah, I, I, I can see where you're going with this, Melody. And the, and the question you're, you're zeroing in on is, what could possibly go wrong? Hmm. Yeah. And there are unintended consequences galore from what we've been talking about, our fossil-fueled superpowers. And that's something we should explore next time. Ralph Waldo Emerson observed, Every basket of coal is power and civilization. For coal is a portable climate. It carries the heat of the tropics to the polar circle, and it is the means of transporting itself whithersoever it is wanted. Coal carries coal, by rail and by boat, to make Canada as warm as Calcutta. But should Canada be as warm as Calcutta? Can and should are very different questions. The child wonders, can I? The adult wonders, should I? Like children, we invented without reflection. We set forth burning and consuming, carving up the landscape and enclosing ourselves inside. The coal train keeps rolling because it can. And we keep it going because we fear we must. When is it time to skid to a halt? Will we engage these hard questions because we should? Or will we postpone until we must? We are creating and using more energy than ever before. What will we do with Emerson's coal? That precious gift... A million years of concentrated sunlight. We will leave you with one of the best-known songs of the Great Depression, a song that has haunted me since I was 13. It tells the story of the everyman 
whose honest work towards achieving the American dream has been foiled by economic collapse. Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun, brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Buddy, can you spare a dime? For a more in-depth account of the genesis, evolution, and adaptations of power, check out Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival at your local library, or get a personal copy to scribble in the margins. A great companion piece is The Future is Rural, Food System Adaptations to the Great Simplification by Jason Bradford. You can download it for free at postcarbon.org. But beware! You can't unsee humanity knocking hard against our limits to growth on this finite planet. Are you ready to confront power? This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Melody Travers Allison, and Rob Dietz. Richard Heinberg is our resident expert. Theme music is by Robert Larrabee. Brother Can You Spare a Dime was performed by me, and you can find more of my music at melodychabrellin.com. This is a program of Post Carbon Institute. Learn more at postcarbon.org.